Welcome back to the Work For It podcast. This is part two of my interview with Ryan Coakley from Ryan Chadbourne Knifeworks. This is a great conversation and it went so well that I wanted to split it up into two separate parts. But before we jump into this interview, I want to tell you all about our sponsors. First of all, we've got Patreon. We couldn't do the show without you guys. Thank you so much for your support. We've got Maritime Knife Supply and Baker Fortune Tool. Maritime Knife Supply is one hell of a great place to go and get your maker materials. If you are a knife maker or any type of maker in general, go to MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. That is where you're going to find all of the materials and some of the tools that you need. And you get it for great prices and it ships super quick. And Lawrence Lake is a great guy. You want to support these people and they are so good to the, to the maker community. Also, go check out Baker Forge and Tool. They're always coming out with crazy, mind-bending Damascus. So many cool things always coming out at Baker Forge and Tool. And you can get an exclusive discount here at Work For It Podcast. If you type in WFI10, you'll get 10% off. Go and support them and also check out Gator Piss, their etching solution. It is next level, great stuff. Thank you guys all for your support. Let's jump back into this episode, and if you haven't listened to the first part, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it, because it was such a great interview. Let's go ahead and get into the show. If you were given, you know, let's say, you know, a customer comes to you and says, hey, I've got, let's say, two grand to spend on a custom knife from you, and I want you to make whatever the hell you want. Or, you know, let's just say a customer comes to you and say, make whatever you want and I will pay whatever you need for it. What is that crazy thing that you've always wanted to make that would be, like, the next thing that you're obsessed about? Oh, Jesus. I know, um, that's super open-ended, but basically I want to know, like, what is the knife that you've always wanted to make? Oh. <sighs> You know what? What? Dennis Tyrell's elven copper sword. Okay. Something similar to that, I think. So you don't want to reproduce Devin Tyrell's. You want to make your own version of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to copy Dennis Tyrell's knife. but <laughs> that's. I love the fact that, like... When I say, what is, like, the pinnacle, what's the craziest thing you want to make, and you say, Dennis Tyrell. Isn't that just a natural thing? <laughs> he's the humblest motherfucker ever, and he's got so much natural talent, it's almost disgusting. Right. It's like, dude, how are you this good? Right. Who the fuck are you? Are right. you an alien? Like, he's so... And his day job requires a great deal of brain power, too, so it's like... He he's just one of those high output exceptional people. Right. And he's super humble. He's not a dickhead to anybody unless they deserve it. Right. And that sword, when I saw that for the first time, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I was like, wow. So something similar to that. That I'm just trying to give something for our listeners to be able to like picture in their brain. Sure. Because all this stuff that Baker's doing, like Baker Forge with all this copper stuff, it's really changing the game. And like when I started a few years ago, copper in a blade was something I never thought of. I was like, you know, I mean, Damascus, everybody knows about Damascus, but like what we can do now, or I say we, but what these people who are making these steels can do now is just getting crazy. I mean, with Dennis, speaking of Dennis and the gold blade. Right, right. You know, um, where we're at now with modern technology and our ability to use science and metallurgy versus where they were a thousand years ago. I mean, who knows what our kids' generation is going to have for, for Damascus-type steels, you know? My initial knee-jerk is like, well, we're, we're at the pinnacle. There's no going up from here. But I know a thousand years ago when they made, you know, folded steel or something that could hold an edge properly, you know, they, I'm sure they thought, well, this is the pinnacle. I can't get better than this. I mean, and if you think about it back then, so the Vikings would take bones of 
either like loved ones or fallen enemies and mix them with the iron. And they thought that it, so they had no scientific reference. So they believed that it made the steel stronger because it was taking the power of the person whose bones it was when in fact they were just adding more carbon, carbon. into the mix. Right. More um, carbon into the mix. Right. So, I mean, where we've come with, you know, crucible steels and all these super steels that keep getting developed, like Magna Cut and uh, Apex Ultra, when, you know, with, from Tobias. Right. Um, who knows what we're going to come up with? Even in 10, 20 years, I mean, look at cell phones over the progression of the last 20 years. If we keep pushing steel and knife making steels the way that we're, we have been for the last 10 years, I mean, it's going to be crazy. It's, I mean, it's, it's just like everything, you know, it seems like with technology, there's, there's always these big booms of like rapid, rapid growth. And it seems like with steel, it was, it was just kind of this flat line for a long time. And then over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, it's been a crazy exponential growth of, you know, I I guess I don't know where I was going with that, but, you know, it seems like there is such a giant exponential growth boom, and we're still on that uprise, which is crazy to me because, you know, as good as our steel is now compared to even 100 years ago or, you know, whatever, it's it's just amazing to me that, you know, we've come all this way within a single human's lifetime. Imagine what it's going to be like for our kids at you know, the end of their lives, like, what are they going to be you know, rocking with? Yeah. And it, I think it has a lot to do with um, the internet and the ability to take over design and, and making of these different steels into the hands of artists over scientists and industrialists. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in the past hundred years, the people making steel have basically been scientists and industrialists, not scientists who are actually artists and knife makers, which is something we see now. Um, and some and that, of it, some of it could be that, you know, it went from something that you had to make to live off of to now it's something that you make as, like you said, a piece of art or something like we, it's not something that needs to, it's not something that needs to come up to a level and there's no sense in going past it because it's just going to scratch and whatever. Where now it's, you know, just an obsession that we can, we have the luxury of doing it as a non-essential tool. Yeah. And, and also, so like our grandparents' generations, you know what I mean? They, nobody had multiple professions. You were a bricklayer. You were a right. carpenter, you were a plumber, you were a salesman. And now we have unlimited access to information. So any one of us can be a jack of all. You know right. what I mean? Like if, you, if you're if you a plumber and you're so sick of cleaning up other people's shit for a living or fixing pipes, you can easily become a welder or easily become a knife maker or easily become a carpenter or even a doctor, whatever you want to do. Now the information is out there. It's so easy to just go type, type, type. Oh, this is how I lay a TIG weld. Now, I, doctor might be a little bit of a stretch. Well, doc, <laughs> little, little bit more planning and you know dedication right. in there to become a doctor. But anybody could start going to school. Oh, sure, sure. That makes that yes. And and put in the work and time to do that. You know, um, if you wanted a quarter million dollars in college loan debt. Right. Which, which I'm not a college guy. Uh, I, I don't believe that colleges should be on the pedestal that they're on. So I am in a weird situation with that because I went to school for many multiple years, like four and a half years, and then walked away without a degree because I went three and a half years for teaching and then realized I didn't want to be a teacher. And I feel like, you know... The thing that I gain the most from college is the connections with people. Like, for instance, my videographer. I met him through Marching in the Marching Band. And, like, his, you know, my my connection to him now made it so that I could make YouTube videos, which made it so that 
I could get into the fantasy challenge because I was on this podcast because, you know, all of the things just kind of came together because I met the right person at the right time, you know? Right, yeah. And, you know, for me, college, it, it never, like, I was, I guess this is an interview about you and now it's turning over to me, which I try <laughs> to stay away from. But, you know, college, I'm also the same way where I never was a great student unless I was passionate about what I was learning. Like, I, I would get a good enough grade. Like, I could I could do the grunt work and make it happen, but I wouldn't put in that extra effort that you needed to get, you know, the A. Right. I just couldn't um, push myself to do that. And, you know, with college, I was just learning a bunch of stuff. You know, at first I was really in it because teaching, and I was all fired up to be a teacher. And, you know, I was putting in all this extra effort, and then, you know, I kind of lost that interest, and I realized I wasn't going to be a teacher. And then... You know, I wasn't passionate about anything, so I wasn't getting great grades. And then I realized, well, fuck it. Why am I doing any of this if I'm going to end up with a degree that I'm never going to use because I'm not passionate about it? Yeah, and you accumulated debt that entire time. Oh, I'm I'm still I I pay five hundred dollars a month for no paper. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, uh, it's like, and that's that's a a good example of of why I feel the way I do about college. And I believe that it stems from a few things. So for you in particular with teaching, the system of hiring and tenure with teachers is a very bad system in my opinion. You should never be able to have somebody that you can't fire. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. And the, over, like, uh, the turnover with teachers is very low. Right. Um, so that's a profession in itself that's hard to get into when you're in it. Um, but also with college, they're pushing people into ac like academic areas where there are no job openings away from trades that need to be fulfilled. We need welders and we need electricians and we need plumbers and road workers. Now, and we need I don't I don't know if I fully agree with that because, you know, when I guess my experience with college is, you know, you go into it thinking, OK, I want this career someday. So I am going to take these, you know, you you find your path, you, there's, there's a, you know, this is the, you find the courses that lead you to that end goal and you declare your major and you figure it out. I never felt like I was ever pushed to become a teacher other than, you know, when I was in high school, I loved my teachers and I even like, I originally was going to be in elementary education um, and so, you know, when I was in high school, I actually was able to get in with my kindergarten teacher because she was a family friend and I was, I would go and, you know, basically shadow the class for one hour a day or one hour a week and get right. that experience. And I thought like, oh my gosh, that's, that's kind of where, where my passion was at the time. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, find that path. Well, even with, you know, like for instance, somebody I I knew wanted to be an engineer and he now works basically on these giant, giant things where, you know, he wanted to be this, this engineer. So he took all of these engineering classes and it just fo followed to where he wanted to go. I never felt like, like I was being pushed into a place that I didn't want to go originally. But were you pushed into college without knowing what you wanted to do? I find that that's happen happening a lot, especially with this new generation and our generation. Like, I'm 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 older than you, but with when I was coming up through school, it was you have to go to college. It doesn't matter why. You just need to go to college. And uh, your engineer buddy, I'm assuming he knew he wanted to be an engineer when he went into it. Right. Right. So exactly. so he he and was able to. That's the way success – it seems like that's the way successful college graduates go. Like they go in knowing where they want to go. Um, it's the people – like there was a lot of times where, you know, especially when I was a freshman and sophomore, people had no idea where in the world that they wanted to go. They were just taking random classes hoping that they find something that sparks an interest. Right. And that they were is a very expensive way to live. They they were there just because they were brought up to think that they had to be there. Right. And that's yeah. where I went wrong because after, you know, after I realized that I didn't want to be a teacher, 
you know, I was just trying to find the quickest route to a degree, which is so stupid because obviously that's not what I'm passionate about. So that's a dumb way to go. Right. Because by that point, you were already so far in debt that how are you going to switch gears? Right. It's a sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. So it's like some of your credits are, you know, will work towards whatever your new goal is. But then a lot of those credits are just, you know, stuff you have in the back of your mind for a rainy day now at this point. Um, Well, at this point, there's there's an expiration date on those credits. If I wanted to go back to become a teacher, I'd have to start off at square one again. Oh, really? Yeah, it's some bullshit. But I don't. I don't know if teaching is the way to go these days. <laughs> Absolutely not. And what's funny is like, you know, I I became friends with a lot of teachers that have are now in the classroom and then they got out into the classroom and like right as the pandemic came through. Yeah. Those people are fucked. Yeah. Uh But yeah. For me college was never an option. It was never there was never any uh, thought that I could ever have the money to do it or be able to right. get to loans to do it. Like I grew up not knowing anything about money and I still really don't. Um, I know more now than I ever have, but I'm really, I'm no Brian house. I'm no, I'm no Lawrence Lake. Like I, I have to ask Lawrence questions about accounting, you know, like I don't, uh, this is the first year I'm going to be filing my taxes as a business. And wow. for me growing up when you're that poor all you can think of all you can relate to getting out of that is work you know what i mean there's there's like you know you see some people who are like they listen to too many rap songs when they were younger so they think they're going to be kingpins and i've known a few of those guys and they still live with their moms they have no marketable skills and that, and that's one of the biggest things anybody needs to do to get out of poverty or to help themselves is learn as many marketable skills as you can learn. Mm. Not just one, not just one like our grandfathers did, but like you need to be able to run a podcast and make knives and fix things and build things and you know like anything that you could someday sell that skill to make more money is I think everybody should do it. I, everybody should diversify their skill sets. So it seems like you are in a position and you have made it so that you are as diversified as you could do and still be interested in what you're doing. Is yeah. there is there another path that you haven't, like is there another rabbit hole that you haven't traveled down that you are interested in? Being like, rich. You, you've, You've done podcasting, you've done knife making, you've done small engine repair, you've done, you know, so many different things that is all, you know, mechanical based. Is there is there another thing that, you know, is something that you've thought about that maybe you would be interested in going down? Well, a lot of stuff is a natural progression, right? So like now I'm I find myself more and more learning editing and using software. I just bought a cry cut. So I've been playing around with that and like computers and things like that, because as knife makers, we have to be able to make video, you know, right. And we, and we have to be able to market ourselves because there isn't enough money in knife making to like hire a marketing team, for instance, or something like, you know what I mean? So we have, we all as a community are learning to do these things on our own and it's, you know, that's just another natural progression. So, like, right now, eventually I'll get really good at video editing and audio editing and using my cry cut and maybe I'll upgrade to a plasma table and learn CAD. And, um, you know, it, it, I just go with the wind takes me, bro. <laughs> it's just I just learn what I need to learn in that, in that moment. I don't – there isn't anything that I really want am like seeking out to know at the moment you know what i mean like oh i need to learn how to do that like previously it was knife making but knife making is such a there's so many facets to what we do that that almost like fills that hunger because you have to learn to grind you have to learn to heat treat you have to learn to make handles you have to learn to drill pinholes yeah you know every step of the process has its own nuances and own little things that affect the end result. And I think like, um, 
all of us trying to take in all this information, especially me with how my brain works, um, knife making really keeps me pretty satisfied because it's a never ending growth process. You know what I mean? You can only be so good as a mechanic, you know? And this is exactly what I was about to say is, you know, before you got into, you know, you said before you, you got into doing small engine repair. And like when you first started, I'm sure you stayed up at night thinking about all of the different things to do to, you know, to learn it or to figure this thing out or that thing out. And, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, it's all just is an elaborate puzzle. And once you finish a puzzle, once you learn every facet about how to put a puzzle together, you know, there's, there's only so much you can learn and you got bored with it. Right. That's, that's kind of what you said is like, you, you got to the pinnacle of, you know, doing small engine repair and you, you kind of got bored with it. Yeah. I kind of am bored with it. I've debated on selling my tools like a, like a burn your boats kind of deal. Right. You know what I mean? Like if I sell my tools, it's not, I'm never going to rebuy all the tools I've got. I couldn't even tell you how much money I have in mechanic tools and shop tools and stuff like that. And um, I don't think I will because I still work on stuff for myself. You know what I mean? Like somebody gave me a four-wheeler that had been sitting for seven years and I uh, had it driving around after $14 worth of parts. So it's like... You know, it's, I, I need my tools because it's a, it's a, there's a financial benefit to knowing what I know, sure. but on the, on the other hand, it's not what I want to do on a daily basis anymore. And it's something that if for whatever reason shit goes, you know, belly up, you can always fall back to doing, you know, doing small engine repair to, to make things happen. But to finish my thought where, you know, before you're doing small engine repair and there's a there's a limit to how good you can get and there's there's kind of like a, a ceiling on on more things that you can learn about it. Where with knife making, on the other hand, it's something that you can work on for the rest of your life and the day before you die, you will still learn something new or learn a new skill or do something better. Right. So there's an unlimited amount of progression you can do on that. So your mind, the way that you learn and the way that you obsess about things will never it seems like it will never go away because you can always go down a different rabbit hole with knife making. Yeah, exactly. Um like you found your calling. You know, yeah, like doing the diamond grinds and the fullers and stuff like that. Um and then like people We'll be like, wow, man, that looks really good. And But when you're the guy that made it, you're like, oh, okay. You know, because we see all the flaws that the right. camera doesn't see or, um, you know, where we could have done better. But then I see other guys' knives, and I'm like, I'm a fucking baby. Right. You know, right. like when I – speaking of Dennis Tyrell, when I see Dennis Tyrell's work, I'm like, wow, I'm an infant. <laughs> right. You know, or like um, Neil Kamimura, his work, like – like his work's not overly complex, but it's beautiful and perfect. And like just the way everything flows together is awesome. And it like, um, um, here's the thing when you go to Neil or excuse me, when you go to, you know, yeah, Neil Kamimura or you go to Dennis Tyrell, they can still point out things that could have done better. Exactly. It's a never ending thing. And like, even with, uh, Mareko, I idolize Mareko. Mareko is, um, Mareko's episode of the Joe Rogan experience was the turning point where I was like, because when you first start out as a knife maker, as we all know, everybody around you thinks you're fucking insane. Right. And they're like, you're never going to make any money at this. You're wasting your time, blah, 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 blah. But, and that was my situation. You know, my wife had a very hard time understanding what the fuck I was doing and why I was investing all this money and time into this. And, uh, when I saw Mareko's, episode i was like holy shit some you can do it you can make it as a knife maker and then as you get into the community and you start to see more and more of these bigger makers you realize that it it is possible and there there is a large enough market for all of us to thrive and um yeah i forgot where i was going with that but it's okay so when is it i mean obviously your buddy buddy with joe rogan now that he's your <laughs> post. when are you going to be on the show like do you have a date set i would die a happy man if i <laughs> could ever get on rogan um that man has the 
ability to have any person on the entire planet on his show. So right. I'm not holding out hopes. Um, I never talked to Joe Rogan. And I know. I know that was a bit. I was it was joking on the on the podcast I know. a couple of weeks ago or whatever. I know. I because House said that he could get on the show and blah blah blah. Yeah. No. Um, I mean maybe he could. Hey. You never know. But, anyways, uh, that was a uh, that was crazy, man. So Joe Rogan shared one of my reels, and it was the the lamest reel ever. I was I have a Joe Rogan tattoo on my shin, and he was. Sh- and it was like three o'clock in the morning and I'm shaving the hair off with a knife I had just sharpened. It was like a 10 second reel and I posted it. And you didn't even show off the knife. You just shaved your leg and you didn't like, yeah, <laughs> of all things to go get sheared by Joe and go super viral. You didn't even get to show off your wares. I didn't even show off the knife. The, bl- the, the blade was taped still and I, you couldn't see the handle cause my hand was cupping it. And I just shaved my leg, and I, like, blew the hair off, and I have I have these, like, fuzzy slippers that look like a Mexican blanket. Right. And I had those on, or I guess it would be, like, a Native American pattern. I don't know. Whatever. And they look ridiculous, but they're my shop slippers. And I was wearing those. It was totally not the reel that I would have wanted him to post. Right. But he did. But he did. And that's where this batch of 50 came from. Um, I picked up a lot of custom orders from it. It's really cu- quieted down now. It's back to normal, but um, it was. It's weird how one guy has that much power, where all he has to do is say your name, and your whole trajectory changes. Saint Rogies, man. Saint Rogies, shout out to Shane Gillis. So here's my question: Do you? I mean, I feel like you shave your leg, and it gets shared by Joe Rogan. If I had that situation, I feel like about once a week I would be showing off a beautiful knife and shave that leg. Like that <laughs> leg, that leg would be shaved all the freaking time. Yeah, I think you only get lucky like that once. And that wasn't even luck cuz I didn't tag Joe in it. We have a mutual friend. Sure. And uh shout out to Mike Jones Knife and Tool. Right. And Mike sh- Mike showed Rogan the the video. So he sent it to him. Well, I feel like you need to recreate that situation and, like, show off a beautiful knife because, I mean, if you just did that and you didn't show off the knife and you got some response, just imagine the upsides. That has always been my goal. That Like, since day one of knife making, like, you know, like, you set goals for yourself, like, oh, I want to save this much money. My My first goal for knife making was I want to be good enough so that Joe Rogan will want to buy one of my knives. And I'm closer now than I've ever been, I think. I have a knife on the bench for a very famous UFC fighter. And it was not the usual me bugging them to let them make me let me make them a knife. He reached out to me. Ooh. Which was like a change, which is awesome. Um, and I've gotten knives out to I think five five or six UFC fighters now. Yep. So there was Max Payne Griffin, Jessica Rose Clark, Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell, Chad Mendez, and now Anthony Smith. And Chad ha- Mendez, that sounds like a name that I know. Uh, he was the former interim champ. He fought Conor McGregor. Oh, okay, maybe that's where I know him from. He's, because he's a I bad mama jama. I never, like... I've watched, like, big fights. Like, I've watched, you know, Mayweather. I mean, this, this isn't, like... I, I don't watch very much fighting in general, but, like, when big fights happen, like when Conor McGregor and Mayweather fought, or, like, I know that's not UFC, they boxed, but, like, you know, I've Still. seen a couple big ones, but, you know, whenever I have watched them, it's such a spectacle, and I can see how you can get passionate about that type of a thing. It's the only sport that I follow. Oh, is, wow. Is, uh, I, not just MMA, but, like, combat sports in general. I don't care so much for boxing. I'll watch specific boxers. Like sure. Tyson like Tyson Fury's my favorite. So I'll watch Tyson Fury whenever he fights or stuff like that, but mainly I watch UFC. Um and I I'm it's another one of my obsessions. I watch every event they put on. And wow. it's it's the only sport that I I've got a TV and a recliner in the shop. So when UFCs are on, my grinder faces the TV. 
So like I can look up for a split second, see what's going on, look back down to what I'm doing. Um, so I guess what got you into that? Like what was the, the genesis of that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I Did think you, was there was, just a fight that you saw once and you're like, Oh my God, this is awesome. No, I don't think so. I used to watch pro wrestling when I was a kid. Okay. And then, uh, you know, cause back then we didn't all know it was fake. Right. <laughs> Which now looking back on it, like I, I have Peacock, the streaming service and all the WWE stuff is on there. And so like, I went back and I watched WrestleMania three the other day and I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. Right. Like, how did, how did I think this was real? But so I used to, <laughs> I watched that when I was a kid. And then, uh, my, my brother, Richie, who I do the bro down showdown with, he, uh, he's really big into all sports, including MMA. So we, we started like when uh, big fights would happen, he would get the pay-per-view and I'd go over and watch it with him. And it just kind of like, we just kept doing it. You know what I mean? Sure. So. I mean, have you ever like, I'm, I'm sure. Have you ever thought about getting in the ring and doing it yourself? Obviously you're not going to fight anybody like that, but I mean, have you ever thought like, Oh, I, I could try that one day. No, because I'm old. Okay. I'm like, uh, fighting is a young man's game. I'm 37. So I'd be coming into the end of my career if right. I had, tra- if I had trained my entire life. Right. Um, I did wrestle in high school. Me too. Middle school into high school. Um, what weight class did you wrestle? 160. I was a lot smaller back then. Right. I was and, a 189. Yeah. And that might have something to do with it because, like, a lot of the parts of MMA that people think are boring are the wrestling parts. And that's the most interesting. Like, the couple fights that I've watched, it's, you know, when they're standing and they're, they're, they're throwing punches and kicks back and forth. Like, that's, I don't know. Once they get down to the ground and they're, you know, throwing moves that I can kind of understand because I was a wrestler back in middle school and high school. Like, yeah. that's, that's the interesting part to me, the grappling. Right. Cause you can see like, oh, he needs to get his, he needs to get into half guard so that he can get into this position or, uh, the guy on the bottom needs to unlock his legs so that he can get up to his feet. Like you, you see the little, like where other Yes, where other people just see two guys laying on each other and punching each other in the face. <laughs> like, There's a lot more there than BCI. right. We see that that guy's knee is on the wrong side for that move, so like it's not going to be locked in tight enough to submit the guy. But we know that. But like, and like the commentary on UFC does they pretty much exclusively have ex fighters as commentators, right? And they do they do a really good job of explaining that during fights to like keep people engaged. Um, right. But as somebody who wrestled and and you have a, a greater appreciation for how fucking hard that is. Oh, my God. How hard it is to hold another full grown man against the cage, you know, and like or like uh, Habib Nurmagomedov. Right. Yeah. Habib Nurga who's retired now. He would that do like is the only fighter that I I have watched. I think not all of his matches, but I've watched like the highlights. That guy was crazy. And it's He's amazing so to me that he, like, he just stopped at his prime. He uh, was completely he... unbeaten. Like, was isn't it a thing that, like, only a few people have gotten out of the first round with Khabib? No, most of his fights went the distance. Um, oh. He's only lost, they say, two rounds. Oh, that's what I that's In, what I in his entire career, he's only lost two rounds. He's undefeated. Um, he The rumor is he never loses rounds even in training. Um, he comes from Dagestan, which is a Russian caucus country, um, where like they've, it's, it's where like Russia has been at war with like Muslims and like, so there's a lot of uh, turmoil there. His father raised 25 or trained 25 world champions in combat wow. Sambo. Um, well, his I dad, imagine so it's, his... it's, it's kind of like the Spartans, you know, they were, <laughs> it was all war and it was all turmoil and it's all. You know, you 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 make the hardest men or the most fierce men in those conditions because you have to. And right. those guys, like the Dagestani's, are just crushing everybody in in all combat sports right now. But uh, Habib's father specifically raised twenty five world combat sambo champions, and Habib was his son. 
Um, mm. And Habib retired. He was gonna. His father's dream was to for him to retire at thirty and zero. Um, his father died of COVID, and then he fought his twenty ninth fight, won, and that's when he retired because his mother asked him to. And, I remember. I remember hearing that that he he is on top of his career. He was still he's still young, right? Isn't he like yeah. in his early twenties or mid twenties? Yeah, he's like late twenties, I think. And uh, it's like, just like you you still have at least five to ten years left in your career that you could continue. But mom says, "Hey, I think you know you are better off if you just stop, or I want you to stop." And he's just like, "Yep, that's what the mama wants." Yeah. Uh, well, they're devout Muslim. And they hold parents like we hold our parents in high esteem. Right. Obvious. Obviously, we all love our parents, but they hold their parents in a different level of reverence than we do. Right. And so, to him, promising his mom he was done, he's done. You don't. Right. You don't break promise to mother. You know, right. like they're. <laughs> and it, okay, it's, it, the rest you, of this interview you need to do exclusively in that accent. The Russian accent. <laughs> I smashed this guy. <laughs> who, who this guy? I smashed this guy. But right. they, uh, and you got to respect it. And like right. people are like, oh, I want him to come back. I don't even want him to come back because he, he's, he's fucking the most honorable dude you could ever imagine. Right. Um, and I mean, that's, that's the shit that myths are made of. You know, mm -hmm. there's a guy who is absolutely dominant in every aspect. He's only maybe lost a couple rounds and he wins even in his in his practice and mom and, says no and he says okay that's it i mean talk about you know this guy could potentially go a hundred and oh and mom says okay no I, I i would be more comfortable if you stop i mean talk about the model person <laughs> yeah yeah and the craziest thing about him is it was no secret what he was going to do to his opponents. He did the same thing every fight. He'd push yeah. you in, he'd get you down, push you into the corner of the mat in the cage. He'd do what Conor McGregor referred to as the mermaid leg wrap thing, where he would get your what? legs straight. He would get your legs straight by sitting on them and then wrap his legs around yours so yours were crossed. Right. Use his, whichever hand was not going to be his punching hand to hold your one arm that was up in the air and you were posting off your other arm and then he would just punch you in the face repeatedly until either they stopped it or the bell rang. Like, See, you couldn't do anything. So he'd just hold you there and just keep punching you in the face. There is one dude that in high school, he wasn't from my school. I'm talking about wrestling. So there was a kid that was one of my friends that, you know, he went to a different school, but he was just a maniac wrestler. And his whole thing is he would go up to literally we would go he we, he would go to tournaments and he would go to his opponent before the match and tell you I'm going to do this I'm going to shoot on this I'm going to take you down with this I'm going to roll you over with this and I'm going to pin you with this and then he would do it. <laughs> he was just that dominant and awesome. then you know basically he he just dominated at that level and of course it's the thumb it's not like there's a whole lot of you know huge guys like there's not the the wrestlers do not come from the thumb like we're it's just not it's just not that big of an area of, of there's not a high density of talent for wrestling but then he went on and he he started wrestling at central michigan and then basically he he would ragdoll he would ragdoll people in high school well now when he went up to the collegiate level he was the ragdoll and that's where he's like okay screw this i'm done yeah there's levels to it and um, most people who never wrestled or don't know anything or know anyone who wrestles, wrestling training is oh harder than any other sport. Any other sport. I will put I will put money on that. Yeah. Football, baseball, hockey. Well, I can tell anything. you I, I I played you know, I was on varsity for football, baseball, and wrestling. And, you know, I I did hockey back in the day wrestling by far was when i was in the best shape of my life because it is the hardest sport yeah we would do full workouts and then our coaches to wrap up the workout would bust out a deck of cards and <clears throat> all the all the like uh face cards like king queen all that those were all 15 the number 15 okay and if it was red 
you did wall sits for that many mm. seconds. If it was black, you did push-ups for that many seconds, as many as you could do, right. until the until the entire deck of cards was gone. Right. So we're you know you had the whole team of guys, and that doesn't sound like much, but when you're at the end of a deck of cards and you just did three hundred and something push-ups, and sat against the wall for wall sits for you know five minutes total. Right. You're it's brutal. Right. See my, I mean, now we're just swapping old wrestling stories and like, you know, it's, it's almost, it gets the same feel as fishing stories, except for like, we were not bullshitting. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. our, our high school, we had, um, you know, basically we would cut weight and our little wrestling room, there's mats all over the floor. It was, it was an old, um, I think it was the shop class of the middle school when they got rid of shop class, it became the wrestling room. And the whole thing was covered in wrestling mats, except for one wall. And that one wall, there were heaters. Like, there was the regular heater that there was a thermometer in the room that we could turn it up. But then there was, like, space heaters all across that room. So when <laughs> we were cutting weight, we would turn, we would crank those things up. So And then we, it would be about 110 degrees, or maybe 100 degrees in that room. And we would all be in sweats. Like, we would be layered in... in you know, you know, cotton shirts and sweatpants. Like my worst one, I um, I did. I lost. I think it was ten pounds in four hours. Maybe mm. it was even more than that. And it was just, you know, I I was in layers and sweats, and I would I would work in that room, and I would basically rustle, 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 and then I would saturate my bottom layers. So I would take off those bottom layers and put on new bottom layers, so that because if you have that sweat sitting across your body you can't sweat more because you already have that on your body. And it's yeah. just wild. It's crazy what these people put themselves through. And then, you know, I'm thinking, you know, in the small school, there's gotta be only like one or two people are crazy enough to do that. No, there's a whole wrestling room full of those people. It's oh, yeah. just wild. And it's, it's something that you push yourself to the nth degree and then past that. And you, you really learn that when things suck, there, you can you can grit down and go past that. Exactly, it, like uh, there's no giving up. Right. You're not you're not allowed to give up. Right. You know what I mean. And uh, a lot of weight cutting should be banned. And a lot of a lot of people don't know what weight cutting is. And basically, what you're doing is you're tricking your body into dehydrating itself. So you're draining pounds of water out right. of your body to and try and hit I a weight mark. When I said I lost 10 pounds in that four hours, that's already after I've lost all of my water weight for the season. Right. Like so that's, that's in... not like I'm fat, like I, I have a lot of water in my system and everything else. That's after weeks and weeks and weeks of dropping pounds because I would end football at um, 215 to 220, and then I would be a month later in wrestling season. I'd be you know at 189 or 185 so that I had a couple pounds where I could you know not go into the into the – um, into the meat, you know, famished. I'd right. be able to eat before. I'd be able to eat like a pound worth of food before I'd go into it so that I'm not gassed before going in. Yeah, and rehydrate. Um, like They still do it in the UFC, and I believe they do it in Bellator, but 1FC, the Asian organization, has banned weight cutting. Right. Um, and they like really should, honestly. Like, the reason why I'm fat now is because I... Lo I you know, starve myself for like three, three and a half months every year. And that just screwed my metabolism. Yeah. And then you dehydrated yourself almost to the point of death. Right. <laughs> so it's like looking back, like if I ever have a son that wants to get into wrestling, I don't think I'd be comfortable with what I went through. No, if they banned weight cutting, it'd be great. And you just f wrestle at whatever your natural weight is. Right. And because they do it for an unfair advantage. Yeah. So, like, uh, a UFC fighter that fights in the 155-pound division probably walks around at 180. Right. And then they dehydrate themselves and suck all the water out, eat a super strict diet to get down to that weight, and then they bulk back up before the fight to make themselves bigger. Right. A good example of that is if you Google Alex Pereira, who's the 185-pound champ right now, he walks around at probably 225 pounds. The guy is an absolute monster, and right. he cut he cuts enough weight to hit 185. What the so, hell? 
So when he gets in, when he gets in there with these guys, he's massive. Because you have like two days to rehydrate and to you know eat food, um, right? But <laughs> just eat food. That's that's a luxury you don't understand unless you're a wrestler. Yeah, you carbo did these load. type of these type of uh, fighting things. Yeah, like you'll <laughs> unless see, you'll, you cut weight, you don't understand the luxury of eating food. <laughs> you'll see fighters in the post-fight interviews like Mao and pizzas, like yeah. just sitting there talking to the press, eating pizza because they need that carbohydrates because they haven't had any for six months, and. I guess I've never understood, like, in high school, especially for, like, you know, meats that actually um, meant anything, you would weigh in that morning. And then you would have, like, an hour before the first matches would start. In in, in that hour or two, that's when you could, you know, eat whatever you needed to eat. And in, in wrestling. Back. Right. Yeah. I've in never wrestling. understood, like, why aren't they a little more strict about it? Because if you want to crack down on these weight cuts and all of these unfair advantage type things, you know, why aren't you do it, like, right before the thing? So that the only the only option you have is to fight or wrestle at the weight that is most beneficial for your body. I don't think the UFC is interested in that because it makes for more exciting fights. Right. Um, 1FC, they do hydration testing, and the weigh-ins are much closer to the actual fight. Um, yeah. Because the weigh-ins for UFC, I think, are either the day before or two days before. Right. So they do, like, an actual weigh-in and where they have to make weight, and then they do, like, the media weigh-in where they show up all, like, jacked and pumped up because they're hydrated again. Right. Like, if, like, you, like if you Google Conor McGregor... At his 145 pound weigh in, he looks like a skeleton. Right. Like, it's not good. It's not healthy for you. It's like um, Chris Bale when he did The Machinist. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and then, Christian... you know, six months later, however many months later, he's Batman. Yeah. That's, that's what, you know, it, I mean, that's like the most extreme version of it, but I mean, it's, it's a smaller version of that. Yeah. It's and wild. I believe he said when he did The Machinist, he just became anorexic. Right. He just stopped eating. Look at the man. Like, look at pictures of Chris Bale when he was doing The Machinist. Christian Bale. What did I say? Chris. Well, yeah. Christian Bale and I are just so close, I call him Chris, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Yeah, Christian Bale. I I mean, he's literally a skeleton in skin. He looks like he just got out of Auschwitz. Like, he is on death's door skinny for that right. movie. And, yeah. like, you do that for a paycheck, bro? God damn, man. <laughs> well, that's that's the craziness of that man. And that's why I will watch any movie that that man does. Oh, he's such a good actor. I've heard he's, like, a horrible human being, but he's, like, a really good actor. So I'll keep well, watching think about movies. it. Like, if you, put, if you put yourself through that type of thing for a role... That man's not going to be a pleasant person to be around. Yeah, no. It's not just at all. a level of crazy you have to be. Well, Ryan, he was, he was the best Batman. He is. He is the the best Batman by far. And mm-hmm. Heath Ledger is the best Joker. And that's yep. that's just the way it is. Tom Hardy, <laughs> Tom Hardy crushed it as Bane. You know, I never, I never really enjoyed. Like, I enjoyed Batman Begins, and then you know. What was the, the Batman with Heath Ledger? Like that Dark is, Knight Rises. Dark Knight is by far the best super super villain movie or super super, you know, whatever movie. Superhero movie. That's the word yeah. I was looking for. That is like the pinnacle. And like the fact that it came out, you know, basically in the the, you know, 9/11 era where people are all scared about, you know, we're we're always scared about terrorism, but that's when everything was so heightened and it's a whole movie about terrorism. Yeah, we a, needed a, a Batman. Right, and that's that just it was the perfect movie and the perfect actors and the it was just a great movie for the time period. And it seems like it's all gone downhill from there. I've yeah. never enjoyed any of any of the uh DC comics and even Marvel. Like Marvel sucks now. I'm I it's just the way it is. They should have stopped with Avengers Endgame. I agree. I and thoroughly that- agree. And they need to, like, I'm a big proponent. They need to stop beating these dead horse franchises to just squeeze a little money out of them. I don't care at all 
about these little offshoot shows that are coming out or like uh, for Star Wars, Avengers, any of that stuff. I mean, we already know what happened. How are you going to do a movie about a character that died three movies ago? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, is what it is. It is what it is. I just oh. my my wife has a big heart on for Tom Hardy. So I'm like I'm forced to watch his shit all the time. He's a really good actor. So I liked him as Bane. But. Sure. And you know, there I you know, we're we're talking about movies on a podcast where people do not give a shit about this type of stuff, I'm sure. But <laughs> there's just some there's some actors that go it's the method acting. It's the it's the people that, you know, become that character and really immerse themselves in it that it's just a level of crazy that you don't see very often. Yeah. And I think sure. that might resonate with you because specifically because you've been at those low lows and you you have gone through those hardships and you know what it's like to, you know, rise up away from it. Yeah, that I, don't, I don't know if those two dots are close enough to really connect, but it did Maybe. in my mind momentarily. I mean, it's that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, which is, if we're being realistic, is a flawed mentality because some people don't even have fucking bootstraps, as Joe Rogan once put it. You know what I mean? Like, there are some people who it would take a miracle for them to get out of the situation that they're in. I'm not talking about people here in America and in the first world, but... You know, there's people across the planet who are in dire hopelessness and our problems are like nothing, you know, like, oh, my car wouldn't start this morning. Well, you've got a car. Right. And you you slept in a bed last night. So that's pretty good, you know, but what a way to end a podcast right there. You slept in a bed last night. It's not that bad. Yeah. Stop complaining. (laughs) Work harder. Nobody cares. Work for it. Some would say work, work for it. Work for it. Well, Ryan, before we get going, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, Ryan Chadbourne Knifeworks, or Facebook. Um, but I post most of my stuff on Instagram. And go check out the Brodown Showdown with me and my brother Richie. That is not a safe for work podcast. And <laughs> uh, the Hustle and Grind podcast with my co-host Noel Bloomberg, where we talk about knives sometimes. <laughs> and, I mean, honestly... There are just a few podcasts I listen to every single week, and that is one of them. The Hustle and Grind podcast is such a great listen. Best, definitely go check those out and check out Ryan at all of those places he just said. Thank you so much for sitting down. This is by far the longest interview I've done. So you've repaid nice. that favor of the, what was it, like <laughs> two and a half hour? Yeah. And we crushed it. Good. See you guys. Bye.